very lucky to have David with us to bring God's word. Just before you come and speak, David, have you got those thoughts for you? Dear Lord, we thank you that uh, we have the privilege of having David here to bring your word to us. We pray for him, that through him you will speak to us all, and that we will uh, benefit from his words and his wisdom. Thank you very much for those very kind words. Um, thank you all for the very warm welcome I've had here. I mean that most sincerely. It's always said you don't get a second chance to make a first impression, and I, uh, the first impression you get of this chapel is one of love and warmth, ca essential characteristics of the Christian faith, of what we should be as Christians. Uh, just a brief word by way of introduction, as you, you've not met me before, um, moved into this area about three years ago. I'm a retired lawyer, spent most of my early days in the magistrate's court service. I so loved the job I married one of the magistrates. <laughs> Although, as I often quip, she has even more power at home because there's more, no appeal against her decisions there. <laughs> um, perhaps more importantly, I have been a Christian for 40 years this year, but I say to everybody, but I'm still a wretched sinner saved by grace. Uh, why do I preach? To use the mighty words of the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, I boast in it. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And what a great message, friends, that we do share to a world in so much trouble. Perhaps fitting today that we have a communion service here, a feast, because this morning in this sermon we're looking at another feast in Bethany. Uh, the title of this sermon effectively is The Anointing of Christ, a scriptural lesson in good and evil. I think it's important that uh, in addition to the reading, you might do well to look at because we have more details in John chapter 12, in the first eight verses, which list those who were actually present, and a bit more detail as to what occurred during this feast. It's very important we see this in, in, in context. We look first at who was there. Simon the leper, it's his feast, it's him who uh, invited Jesus to have this meal. We can perhaps understand why. Simon the leper, he's clearly no longer a leper because he wouldn't be there, he's, he's unclean, but clearly he is a person whom Jesus himself has miraculously cured. It has been suggested, although there's no strong evidence one way or another, that because it's his house we can read into it that he's possibly the, the father of the other people there, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Whatever, he is a testimony of to Jesus and, and Jesus' ministry. The disciples are there, all of the disciples. Important in the context 
is we look at the background of Mary and Martha. We recall, I'm sure, that um, Martha, in, in, in previous times, she's clearly a, a great one in the kitchen preparing meals, and she chides her sister Mary for spending too much time with Jesus. And Jesus said, well, she's not being criticized for the preparation that she's essential, but he, basically, Mary, you had the better part. More importantly, as we move on in time, is what happens not long previous to, to, to this meal. And we read in John's Gospel, chapter 11, the amazing uh, sequence of events there. Martha and Mary's brother had died. And Martha therefore said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, the mighty words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. And he, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Great faith of that woman. And of course, then we move on to Lazarus because after that, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. A man who had been dead for four days, and it was said quite graphically, he was stinking, rises. The brother that was lost is found. He that is dead is made alive again. So what a context, this, this great miracle. And it's, a, it's a shortly after this in Bethany we have this feast. Jesus performed many mighty miracles. And I think the danger is people look at the miracles, but they're always described as signs because the miracles actually proclaim who this person was, who was performing them. John the Baptist was querying, is this person the Messiah? And this is what Jesus said, tell John the things which you see and hear. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. So that was all the signs he wanted. And we, of course, have Christ, the, 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 the central guest. This is for whom the feast was made. Right at the end of his public ministry. The words just before that that Sarah read, people at that stage were plotting to kill Jesus. These events, we are told, happened six days before the Passover, we can deduce from that this feast was four days, only four days before uh, the crucifixion. So things are, are about to happen in a very major way. Two people take center stage in this story. One is good, Mary. One is a child of the darkness, who is Judas. Let us first, friends, consider that of Mary. 
Her eyes are homes of silent prayer, nor other thought her mind admits. But he was dead, and there he sits, and he that brought him back is there. Then one deep love doth supersede all other, when her ardent gaze grows from the living brother's face and rests upon the life indeed. There's some beautiful pictures drawn from this act of Mary. Firstly, it was all together to glorify Jesus. All of this oil was poured upon him. Every drop was to honor Jesus. It was not aimed to please anybody else. It was not done to direct attention to her, but it was for the one who had done so much for her. Now, doubtless, she would have given gifts to the poor, but at this point in time, it was important that this anointing of Jesus was done. It was done in wonderful love. I often think in, in Scripture, Men might get more of the attention, but it is often the women who demonstrate true love and compassion. I think it is significant. It is Mary who performs this. It's another Mary, Mary Magdalene, who has the great privilege, not the apostles. It was Mary Magdalene who saw first the resurrected Christ. Why? It was said of Mary that she loved much. And isn't that important in our Christian life? She loved much. Secondly, it was done with considerable sacrifice. Uh, because we do learn, thank you, I'm about to tip over. In the passage in John, we read this because it is important. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put in it. So what, what a contrast. We learn here that this was a very expensive perfume. She, she anointed She'd done everything she could. She can't stop the death of Jesus, but this was done out of love for him. That's the one thing we should be uh, obliged to Judas for was the cost of this ointment. It was, it was akin to a year's income for an average person of the day. In other words, it was, it, this is a very, very costly gift but one that she felt Christ deserved to the full, done at the, the highest cost to herself. We don't know how wealthy Mary was, but it was probably just about all she had that, that she could give for, for the great gift that Christ had given to her. It was done with preparation. We read, against the day of my burying, hath she kept this? There's some indication in the anointing Mary knew that, that a catastrophe, a, a great event was about to happen, the crucifixion of the one she loved. Mary 
was not just a plan. She didn't just say, I think I will do this. She got on quietly and did the deed. Silent acts of love were, I'm sure, always muted in Christ's ears. She did it, as I said, in, in reference to Christ's death. We can't really know to what degree she was aware of what would be happening, but clearly there was this amazing anticipation. And then we have this marvelous statement, and I want you to think about this. Jesus says, against the day of my bearing has she kept this. Verily I say to you, whoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she has done shall be spoken of for a memorial of me. Now that's a prophecy of Jesus. We are 2,000 years on from that prophecy. As Sarah was doing the reading earlier, as I'm preaching this sermon, that prophecy continues to be fulfilled. And I think that is, is awe-inspiring. 2,000 years. We are fulfilling, friends, a hidden prophecy of that. What an amazing thought that is. This, of course, was a decisive moment for Judas. He's criticizing Mary. Well, this could have been done for the poor. Uh, and, of course, we know, really, he wasn't bothered about the, the poor at all. This was very much a watershed moment for Judas. He could have repented at that very point and said, yes, yes, Lord, I've got it wrong. Mary has the better part here. He must either cast himself down at Jesus' feet with streams of penitential tears, or he does what we, we know he does just so shortly afterwards, goes off to betray his Savior, the one who can save, rather. He does it, as we know, for 30 pieces of silver, which is perhaps significant. We know 30 pieces of silver from Exodus is the cost of a a slave, the ointment that Mary poured upon Jesus was of a greater value than Judas sold the Messiah for. Now, that's another thought, isn't it? Um, we read, and I think it's very interesting, during Lenten studies at a church back in Wales a few years ago, uh, people felt there was a lot of discussion about Judas because some felt rather sorry for him. I'll leave you to decide as, as I just read on. Um, because at some point he did regret what he did. But I would argue he was devoid of true repentance. We read the words of Jesus in John 17, verse 12. Those whom you gave me I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Where is this scripture to be found? Well, Psalm 55. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I, that I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, that I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walk in the house of God in the throng. Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell. And, and so it goes on. Arguably by human standards, 
There is some form of repentance from, from Judas, but it is far short of what is expected of the Christian. He wanted to get rid of the guilt of his sin because sin at the end of the day truly never satisfied. But there was no love of Christ in this. Not all sorrow signifies true repentance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And friends, that is precisely what happened to Judas because he went and hanged himself. I think it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this, history is full of villains that appear more despicable than Judas, but the truth is that no one could be more evil than he was. No one has ever sinned against so much light and privilege. No one ever betrayed so innocent a victim or ever maintained so hard a heart for so long in the presence of so much compassion and goodness. He hardened his heart against him and he secretly grew to despise the sinless son of God. The evil of his heart defies comprehension. No wonder Jesus called him a devil, nor that Satan had such an easy access to his heart. Friends, these are a very condemning words themselves. We can contrast the repentance of Judas with that of Peter, another apostle who sinned greatly in denying his saviour. But we do know about Peter that he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter's true character is not in his denial but in his repentance. Tears of repentance can in no way atone for sins. As, as the hymn writer says, not the labours of my hands can fulfil the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? Awful sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Genuine sorrow, nonetheless, is an important sign of true repentance. Peter proved that in his life, didn't he? In, he, in his ministry, and in his ultimate martyrdom for the Lord whom he loved. Now, it's very easy to look at, you think, well, this is a story 2,000 years ago. Well, that's quite interesting. But we should be applying the truth of Scripture in our lives today. It's so easy, and we all do it. Stephen, in his speech before the Sanhedrin, he said to those present, you are condemning those who condemned the prophets in days gone past. The prophets now that knew Lord and prayed. And he said, you at this point in time have done exactly the same to the Messiah. The one you've been waiting for all these years. And what did you do? You crucified him. So easy. It's easy at present to condemn the treachery of Judas, the cowardice of Pilate, the blindness of the people, and the malice of the priests who were personally concerned in the death. It is easy to think that if we had seen and heard his words, we would not have joined with the multitude crying, crucify him. We are all by nature deceitful. David 
beg that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. What is needed, of course, is, is a change of heart, a genuine repentance, and, and as Jesus said in John 3, a rebirth. We, of course, are not in a position today to imitate Mary's act of love, but in our own ways, we should do what is pleasing in the sight of God. The critical thing here is one of worship. I think too often, the Good Samaritan, we think of helping our neighbor, but the first and the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then the second, your neighbor as yourself. When the disciples wanted to know how to pray, we have the wonderful Lord's Prayer. Friends, it doesn't start with petitions, and we've all been there, haven't we? God, I want this, I need that. It starts with worship. It concludes with worship. Are we worshiping our God? True worship, of course, will always lead to charity. The second commandment, we demonstrate our love for God in how we deal with our neighbors. I mean, of course, we have experienced this today. And may I join in the words said by our brother earlier for, for Keith, Vanessa, and Alice. These are terrible times, awful times. We can't imagine how it is overnight to lose a home. All I can say, you're in very good company. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords said this, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That in and of itself, friends, we know we have a Savior who understands us, who sympathizes, who has experienced, I know what it's like. And may, friends, I say to you that, that there is a blessing that will come. Oh, that joy that seeketh me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall cheerless be. Yes, the poor will always be with us, and it is right, and I'm sure Mary in her life did what she could for the poor. Are we in our lives showing worship to God? Are people in our families, in our workplaces, aware of our Christian faith and our worship? Are we beacons of light in our community? Are we doing what we can today for others? Mary's ointment heals the whole place. The smell of its beautiful perfume permeated the whole building. Friends, are we doing that in our lives. People are often condemned for, there's no perhaps greater crime for some than, than your friend and neighbor is perhaps more useful than you are. But may we all strive in our lives to be useful, to be loving, and to be a worshipful people. Why? Because we have such a wonderful God. We're all here today, I hope, friends, because 
we know the blessings of God in our lives. Yes, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers. We have a great God who has blessed us time and time again, and so often we lack the grace. It is written, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever. May we all friends say, Amen, brothers and sisters. Thank you. And I think now we turn to our closing hymn. And again, that, friends, says just the same, doesn't it? Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. And it concludes, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 besides. That's a lot to work at, isn't it?